Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. This is the ninth of nine episodes featuring the work of the 2019 Sacred Rights Public Scholarship Cohort. Sacred Rights provides support, resources, and networks for scholars of religion committed to translating the significance of their research to a broader audience. I recommend checking out their fantastic work on Twitter at sacred underscore rights or online at sacred-rights.org. Over this series of nine episodes, I have felt so lucky to collaborate with Dr. Elizabeth Bucar and Dr. Megan Goodwin at Sacred Rights, as well as the nine amazing scholars I've spoken to and from whom I have learned so much. I have to send out a heartfelt thank you to my guests in this nine-episode miniseries for your collaboration, your collegiality, your promotion, and your dedication to spreading research and scholarship to all audiences. So this episode features the work of Dr. Allison Melnick-Dyer. Dr. Melnick-Dyer is Assistant Professor of Asian Religions at Bates College. In this episode, we discuss her career as a scholar and expert on gender and Tibetan Buddhism. We discuss her scholarship and writing focused on the life of Mengir Peldrin as well, an 18th century Buddhist nun and religious leader. Dr. Melnick Dyer is currently working on a book manuscript featuring her research about Mingir Peldrin, so keep your eyes peeled for that in the future. You can follow Dr. Allison Melnick Dyer on Twitter at Allison Melnick, that's at A L I S O N M E L N I C K. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas. Without further delay, Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Allison Melnick Dyer. Dr. Allison Melnick Dyer, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. Um, can you spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit? Sure. So uh, I am an assistant professor of Asian religions at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. And my area of specialty is uh, looking at the intersection of um, gender and privilege in uh, Buddhist history. Mm, fantastic. That's such an, a topic I've never had on the show before. This is going to be great. Can you describe a little bit of your academic path to becoming interested in Buddhism and Buddhist history in general? Like, what were some of your crucial stepping stones and turning points along your academic journey? Sure, yeah. So, um, I would say the, the first uh, stepping stone was when I discovered that um, studying Buddhism from an academic perspective was a thing. Mm. I had not been aware of that. I'd, I'd been a practitioner for uh, most of my young life. And in high school, I went to a public high school in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where we could take classes at uh, the University of Michigan. So uh, I was working at a bookstore at the time called Shaman Drum, and one of my coworkers was telling me about this awesome class that he was a grad student instructor for. Um, and 
basically I became intrigued by this and decided that I was going to try and take a class as a high school student and I thought it was awesome and then sort of forgot about it for a few years and a couple of years later in college um, realized that I could take more similar classes and got really into Buddhist studies um, as an academic pursuit. Uh, it was not something that I had expected to do. It was more um, something that I felt passionate about and slowly inched my way from a political science major into an Asian studies major. Mm. And you came at that from a Buddhist practitioner perspective at first? I did, yeah, at first. And um, then uh, became really interested in the ways that uh, religious institutions function and the ways particularly that Buddhist institutions function and realized that in order to explore that more, I needed to be approaching it from the academic perspective. So eventually decided to go to graduate school um, and at that point shifted over to a religious studies um, uh, approach. Interesting. How did you, do you remember how you found Buddhism in the first place in order to become interested enough to actually practice it? Yeah. So I found, I found Buddhism, um, in the first place through, um, an aunt and uncle who were interested in it, who, uh, taught me very basic, um, uh, basic calm abiding meditation when I was a real little kid as a way mm. for me to help calm myself down. And, um, when I was in high school, I think my first year in high school, I, uh, decided that I wanted to start attending the Zen Buddhist temple in Ann Arbor and announced this to my mother. And she said, okay, great. Sure. You can, you can do that. And I went and said, well, I don't have any money, but I want to take a meditation class. And the priest there very um, compassionately said, sure, you can, you can work in exchange for taking the class. Mm. And of course, those that work turned into more practice. So you are a 2019 fellow for the Sacred Rights Public Scholarship in Religion uh, organization, which I absolutely love because as a podcaster, um, I care a ton about public scholarship and making the work of experts uh, accessible to the wider world. Like I find so many academic books that ideas just get locked into and the greater world who might be curious about those doesn't know that they're in these books. So that's what I love doing about this show is finding the works that I feel like get locked inside of these inaccessible uh, places for most people and then putting them out into the world and seeing who grabs onto them and how they, interest, uh, how they get interested in them. How and why did you become interested in pursuing this particular opportunity in public scholarship with sacred rights? You know, it's funny. I actually became interested in it for a lot of the, the same reasons that, that you're talking about. Um, I feel like there's this trove of academic knowledge that exists that is not necessarily accessible to a wider public audience and um, could be of really great interest and also 
of benefit for a larger audience to to be thinking about these things and discussing these things. So um, for me, it's it's about um, bridging this gap between this you know brilliant scholarship on one side and a wider audience who may very well want to be discussing and thinking about these cool ideas. Um, yeah. How, how did you find sacred rights in the first place? So I found sacred rights um, through my colleague, Megan Goodwin. Mm. Uh, and we had had many conversations about this, um, this gap and how to bridge it over the years. And so when she hatched the, the sacred rights concept um, with Liz Bukar, I, I said, oh, this is amazing. How can I be, uh, you know, how can I participate? And when they announced the 2019 cohort, I, I applied. That's so cool. Have you listened to Keeping It 101 with Megan Goodwin and Elise yeah. Morgenstein first? It's amazing. I love it's them amazing. so much. That show is so cool. Yeah. So Absolutely. Everyone should listen to that show. Keep it Absolutely. Keep it at 101. Um, so I had uh, Alex Gardner on this show, and he founded uh, a group called Treasury of Lives. And I know that you know who they are because you've written for them. Um, so Alex is a Tibet scholar. He's a biographer. And we had a really cool chat about his most recent book. Um, and he spoke about the ways that he fell in love with Tibet. And I know that you're interested in this as well. And it was so wonderful to hear from Alex his story of how he came to care so much about Tibet. And in your writing, you write about Tibet as well. How did you come to fall in love with uh, with Tibet as a topic you wanted to explore within your own work? That's a that's a great question, um, and it actually features Alex Gardner. Um, <laughs> my answer does. Uh, so when I was in college, um, I had the opportunity to go on a study abroad trip to um, to Tibet, and that trip was. Uh, led by Andy Quintman and Gareth Sparham. And we went, we were there for two months. It was amazing, mind-blowing experience uh, to be, first of all, in a place that was so different from um, my home in Michigan. And um, at the same time, I found that I was able to make connections with the people there. And uh, it was very much like I, I like the the sort of metaphor of falling in love because it was like falling in love with this landscape with um this community of of people um tibetan people and and learning about uh their form of buddhism which was still very new to me and um but still having these sort of rosy rose colored glasses on about what what tibetan culture and society were all about and um the following year i had the opportunity to go again to go a second time on the study abroad trip and at that time it was being led um by um, Andy Quintman and Betsy Knapper and Alex Gardner. Mm. And um, during that trip, I was able to build on what I had learned from my initial encounter with this community and actually spend more time um, with 
Tibetans, um, specifically with Tibetan nuns, and um, learn more about the reality of their lives. And through that process, I realized this is, this is what I want to be doing with my life, is, is learning about and talking about um, what Tibetan nuns are doing and, and why. Um, and so at that point, I, I developed a more realistic perspective. Those, those rosy glasses went away, <laughs> but I actually, but, but the relationship deepened and I actually came to, to recognize, um, some of the things that, that make studying religion and culture, um, really beautiful. Mm. Um, is looking at the looking at the the reality of the thing rather than the fantasy. So most listeners will never have the opportunity to go to Tibet, most likely. And I wonder if you can go on a sensory journey with me for a second. And if you can think back on those trips um, that when you were in Tibet, having all these you know fantastic experiences, what are some of the sensory experiences that? stand out to the most like are there any sights or smells or feels that you can describe uh from your memory of being in tibet that a lot of people will never get to experience absolutely yeah so the um the mountains are the first thing that come to mind so the himalayan um plateau is this amazing geography um and so if you can imagine being on the side of a very tall um, somewhat really rocky kind of high desert mountain, looking out across a valley and seeing mountains on the other side um, and having it be so clear uh, and so sunny and bright that you can see a rainstorm coming like a, like a small bank of clouds with the rain. You can see it coming towards you and passing mm. by. Um, it was, it was, um, a really beautiful place to be. And um, I hate humidity. So being mm. in the high dry desert was, was wonderful. Um, but also being in a place where you, um, you can see the, the landscape um, in, in high relief. Mm, I love that. That's wonderful. Um, so I've been reading some of your work the last several days, uh, specifically a piece called Female Authority and Privileged Lives. Now, um, you have a biography sort of um, of a figure that you write a lot about. And I am actually at a loss as to how to pronounce <laughs> the name yeah. properly. So I'm yeah. wondering if you can uh, explain um uh, who this person is that you care so deeply about, explain how to pronounce it as well. Sure, yeah, her name is Mingir Peldrin, um, or in, depending on where you are, Minger Peldrin, um, but uh, she uh, is a Tibetan Buddhist nun who lived in the 18th century, and she's a fascinating figure. Um, she was born into a powerful religious family 
She was born and raised at a place called Mindraling uh, Monastery, which was a religious institution that her dad and her uncle had founded. And um, she had a really unusual life in insofar as she had this amazing um, religious training in her youth. She had this, this upbringing um, where her father and her uncle directed her studies um, from, from a young age, and she was able to, to use that education in her adult life in order to, um, in order to, to cultivate um, religious authority. So she's born into a life of really high privilege, um, and, but was unusual in that her family uh, let her become a nun and and she was able to sort of leverage her privilege to um, cultivate this religious authority in the context of being a monastic woman, which is really is very unusual. Um, there are a couple a handful of women for whom we have stories like this um, and so uh, she lived through a civil war. She went into exile for several years. Most of her family was killed. Mindra Ling was um, destroyed. Uh, and she was able to then return after the civil war and help rebuild um, and became a prominent leader in her community. So I'm, I'm writing a book about her, about her about her life and also about her hagiography, mm. um, which is a really fascinating document. Okay, so you mentioned the hagiography, and it's written by one of her disciples. Uh, so for those who don't know this term, hagiography, I've never actually said that word on this show ever. <laughs> what is a hagiography, and how did you come to find this particular text about Mingyur Peldrin? Yeah. So, um, so first of all, it, it, so the the term hagiography actually comes out of uh, scholarship on medieval European saints. So it's um, it's a term that, in Minger Peldrin's case, does apply. Um, I'm using it to talk about um, a. T uh, a text that in the Tibetan genre is called a namtar. So in the medieval European context, hagiography is a life story of the saint that is meant to show um, their, really their um, soteriological successes. Uh, how did the person become a saint? How do we know they were a saint? What miraculous um, accounts do we have of that person? Um, and it, it applies, hagiography applies to a wide range of different mm. genres. Um, so in the case of Mingyur Peldrin, she has a namtar written about her. And um, a namtar is a, it's a form of life writing. So it was written by her, by her um, disciple. He was, a, he was a monk. He was about 15 years younger than she was. He wrote it after her death. And um, Namtar also refers to a, a range of Tibetan life writing um, that 
may or may not look more like biography. It might look more like hagiography. In Mingyur Peldrin's context, it really looks like hagiography. Um, he's highlighting her, her, her experiences of enlightenment, um, her religious accomplishments, and he's supporting those with um, references to uh, miraculous occurrences, signs and portents, and all of that kind of stuff. Interesting. Well, you write in your piece, Female Authority and Privileged Lives, about this source, this hagiography being the primary source for a lot of your work. And I love the um, talking to historians and scholars about what it is that they do as far as like researching archival documents and examining historical pieces and primary sources. Uh, can you talk about your experience as a scholar of examining this work and what it is that you do in order to uh, study something like this? Sure, yeah. So I, I first learned that this work existed when I was in grad school um, and I was uh, learning about Mindra Ling. I was interested in it and um, my grad advisor, Curtis Schaefer, um, told me that this text existed, that there was this life of this woman. Um, she had been an important teacher and no one had written about her. So I would, well, yeah, so I, I basically, I became um, really intrigued by by her story and started reading it um, and realized that the text um, was functioning at multiple levels, and I wanted to explore those more um, because I think they're they're interesting in terms of how they talk about her life, her actual lived life, but also how the text talks about things like her gender. Um, and her family, and her view of the religious institution at the time. So I got into it, I, I started reading it, um, and for a long time I only had one version of it, um, and there really is only one, uh, one version of this, of this Namtar. There are a couple of different um, publications. Some have better spelling than others. Uh, so I have been spending time with with those, but at the same time looking at the Namtar of Mingir Peldrin's brother, Rinchen Namgil. Mm. He was five years older than her, um, and he also had a life story written about him. So I'm I'm doing some comparative work in looking at, okay, what does this um, this important male figure uh, who was recognized at Minderling as, you know, he, he eventually became one of the central leaders of the institution as well. Um, how does his Namtar look compared to hers? And doing, doing some comparative work, looking at how her story is being constructed. And one thing that I found within her hagiography that's really interesting is that the author uh, uses her, um, her gender at, to elevate her in ways that are unusual. Usually, at least in, in most forms um, or many forms of um, 
Buddhist women's lives, uh, their role as a woman is something that they have to overcome. It is something that stands in their way as an impediment to their path to enlightenment. In this story, it's actually something that helps her um, instead. So mm. it's interesting. And I see it as being related to her, her privilege. Mm, okay, so you write in the piece that female, uh, female, female authority and privileged lives that she was born, was raised in, and taught in Minderling Monastery because her father and uncle founded the monastery. So I'm getting the impression that it's somewhat unexpected that she would also become a teacher in this monastery. Is that, is that, do I have that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I perceive it as, as relatively unexpected. Um, Minderling is um, interesting in that there are a couple of hagiographies of women, and this is one of them. Um, Minger Peldrin's uncle um, wrote a hagiography of his mother, so her grandmother, a brief, very beautiful piece um, about her role in bringing up the family and, and um, sort of positioning her as, as this wonderful central figure in the institution. Um, but you don't often see cases of women who are born into these families who rise to this prominence. So there's, there's a handful of other women like this, um, but it's pretty unusual. And uh, it's especially unusual to find a geography of this length written about one one such woman. Interesting. Well, and I'm also interested in the concept that you describe in the piece a lot about just the term privilege. And this is a term that has come to some significant prominence in our contemporary society the last, you know, dozen years or so. Um, can you define a bit about what that term means within your work and why it frames your work on Minger Peldrin, who is not a person who is alive now while the term privilege is changing throughout time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this is, this is definitely a term that I'm imposing externally. Um, it's something, it's a, you know, 21st century concept that I'm using to, to analyze her life. Um, and I view it as um, a, a constellation of um, unearned advantages. Mm. So in any, in any social context, those might include uh, race, gender, status of wealth, um, education, but anything that, that is, is provided. And so um, one thing that makes Mingir Peltran unusual is that not only was she born into a life of privilege, um, and, and we have stories about other women who were born into such um, privileged lives. So um, Sarah Condro, um, Condro Tare Lamo, um, and others. But what makes Mingir Peltran a little bit different is that her she accessed this privilege within her family and she never left the family. She was never, she never had to escape expectations in order to pursue this religious life. In fact, it's almost as though 
the religious life, the life of a nun, was maybe imposed on her from within the family. Um, so she had access to education that we don't see widespread evidence of, of women, ha- women having access to this kind of religious training. Mm. So it's like the luck of where she was born, almost. Like if she had been born like a, in the town nearby, like there's almost no chance that she would have been selected for education um, and for leadership later on in her life. Right. Yeah, we don't have much much evidence of that. It's because she was born into the family that she was born into, because her father and uncle perceived her as someone who would be a good purveyor of the family's traditions in the next generation and they they saw fit to thus educate her was it um generous of her father and uncle to actually allow her to do this um that's an interesting question i mean i i think so there's a lot so i i have not explored the life of Teradoc Lingpa um, as much as other folks have. So um, in conversations with with other scholars like um, Dominique Townsend, um, my sense is that um, Teradoc Lingpa had a rhetoric of inclusion mm. that, that he put forth. Um, it's unclear, though, how far that spread and whether or not that rhetoric of inclusion was actively used to educate other women beyond mm. your Peltron. So, um, and that's, I mean, I think that's, that's a direction that, that we have to expand our, our knowledge about Minderling. Um, but my sense is that, um, you know, it may have been generosity. It may have also been concern for the continuation of his institution. Mm, I'm so glad I asked that question. That, I love that. Awesome. Um, so something that, I'm, that caught my eye is something that I've talked a little bit about on this show in the past, and that is the notion of wrathful deities. Uh, a friend of mine, Michael Van Hardingsveld, and I talked about wrathful deities in an episode on this show some time back. Um, but you write that she also received training in things like the magical display of the peaceful and wrathful deities. And I'm curious just a little bit, you don't have to say too much about this, but I'm curious how wrathful deities matter within Tibetan Buddhism and uh, the life and times of Mingir Peldrin. Yeah. So wrathful deities are, are fascinating. They're, um, they're great and they're definitely important in, in Tibetan um, Buddhism and, and, uh, the great thing about wrathful deities is that they can be protectors of the Dharma, so protectors of the Buddhist teachings, mm. uh, even as they are fierce and terrifying. Um, so they're 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 wrathful for the good of the tradition, um, in a way that uh, is it's fascinating and it's, it's cool. It's, I love that there's, there's a space for, um, for wrathful beings, um, to be wrathful. Yeah. I love like when I go into like a Zen, uh, a Zendo or something and there's like a picture of Fudo Myo on the wall or something like that. It's so cool. I just love talking about that stuff. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's no, they're they're great. Um, so if anybody listening is familiar with Tibet or like the story of the Dalai Lama and exile, we know that this is something that seems to occur um, within Tibet, and Mingir Peldrin is no exception to uh, violence and exile. And you mentioned earlier. Uh, that she was exiled. Can you tell me a little bit about the trauma that she faced in the year 1717? Sure, absolutely. So um, without going into to too, too lengthy of a history, sure. um, I'll, I'll just say, so in from 1717 to 1718, and then a few for a few years after that, um, there was a civil war in central Tibet. And um there were a lot of monasteries destroyed at this time, and Mindraling was one of them. And uh, there's this very dramatic moment in Mingir Peldrin's hagiography where uh, basically her brother and her uncle are arrested, they're taken to Lhasa, and they're executed. And she and another brother realize, okay, we have to get out of here. We have to escape. So she puts on a disguise. She sneaks out the back window and she escapes. She leaves with a, a handful of, of attendants and goes to Sikkim. And in Sikkim, um, thanks to her, her privileged status as a member of the Mindrilling family, she was welcomed as this great teacher um, and uh, she was basically, um, you know, housed by the royal family. Uh, her sister was married off to a member of the royal family during this time. That didn't work out so well, but okay. Um, and she basically, that was when she started her teaching career, was in Sikkim. And um, once, the, once the fighting had died down, um, she was able to return and start to rebuild. Um, and there's um, this really beautiful description of how she, she feels when she sees the monastery for the first time upon returning. She comes over this pass and sees it and sees that it's been destroyed. And she, um, she sings this beautiful song um, basically calling out um, in in grief about this um, what she's what she's seeing and, and she went on to to help reconstruct the monastery her her one of her other brother Rinchen Namgil eventually returns as well from his exile um, and together they they rebuilt it does that disaster almost like cement her leadership within the community I see it as as cementing her leadership, definitely. Um, and I see it. I see this post-war moment as providing the space for her to take on this prominent role uh, in a way that she may not have. Um, we'll never know, but it's possible she may not have if it hadn't been for this this destruction, this loss of loss of life, loss of leadership. Um, and she was able to step into that to that gap. Mm. So as she leads for the next, you know, however many years, uh, she has this emphasis, it seems like, on nuns. Can you tell me a little bit about her her care for the for the women, for the nuns within her monastery? 
Yeah, absolutely. She was uh, very interested in uh, nuns receiving um, a, a strong education, and uh, she spent a lot of time uh, preaching to them, uh, teaching them. She also taught monks. She also taught lay people. Um, but her instructions to, to women were particularly interesting because she uh, frequently advocated the monastic life for them, um, which I think is, is interesting, especially because of how she talks about it. Um, there are points where she talks about, well, um, you know, you might be worried that if you become a nun, you won't have the resources you need, but you should do it anyway. Mm. Okay. So, you know, we're, we're alive now in 2020. We're talking about things that happened long ago. And I'm always seeking to find ways that things that happened long ago can inform us now. Why is studying the masters of Tibet across the centuries important for us living now in 2020? Like, what did the masters of Tibet have to teach us about life as we know it today? Well, so I think that, I mean, they had a, a lot to teach us about life. And, and one thing is that we can, we can get a great sense of, of context in understanding where we are today. Um, so an, ex an example of this is that in the modern day, um, my sense is that a lot of people think about um, uh, women studying Buddhism as a new phenomenon. This is the first time this has happened. Um, and it's, and it's not, it, it may be the first time that women have had access to certain sets of teachings. Um, and women have had access to extensive education, religious education on the scale that they have right now. But I think that looking at these, early histories, especially of Buddhist women, can help us understand that uh, some of the challenges that we face today are not new. And um, we, can, we can actually learn something from those who came before. Um, mm. I think it's, it's, it's important, it's always important to know history. Um, you know, I'm a historian first, I guess, <laughs> um, in that um, I think that there's, there's a lot that if, you know, if we forget our collective history, we're going to be in trouble. Mm. Well, something that I really enjoyed reading of yours was your biography of Mingyur Peldrin that you have on the Treasury of Lives website, which I think would be an excellent starting point for anybody interested in learning a bit more about this topic. You've you've disseminated such this big life down into this really digestible article with Treasury of Lives, which is so cool. Um, if people want to find you, follow your work, see what you're up to, uh, where can they find you if they want to know more? Um, so that's a good question. So I am on the Twitters, uh, but yes. I, don't, I don't use it a lot, at least not right now. Um, but uh, they can find me also through, through email. Um, once I finish my book, that will, that will come out and be available. Um, but nice. it's not, it's not yet, but, but sometime um, yeah. soon. Um, and so, yeah, I think those are maybe the best ways. 
Cool. Well, I will drop a link to your Twitter in the show notes. So if anybody's listening, they can just go into the show notes of this podcast episode and they can click the direct link from there and follow the work of Dr. Allison Melnick Dyer. Well, thank you so much for taking some time um, at the end of your semester to hang out with me and talk about the life of Mingir Peldrin. This has been such a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybick. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.